Good morning. My name is Mitchell Slater. I'm one of the elders here at River Oaks Community Church. As you can tell, I am not physically with you all this morning. Uh, I wish I was. Uh, my uh, family and I, we've been uh, exposed to COVID and uh, still waiting on test results to get back. So just thought it uh, wise uh, to not be there in person, uh, but very thankful for technology and for technologically uh, able members of this church to make this happen where I can still bring, um, uh, still bring you the message from God's word this morning. So let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 27. And as you're turning there to Acts chapter 27, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So I pray that you would comfort us with the presence of your life-giving spirit. I pray that you would fill our hearts with hope and joy and peace as we open your word together. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. On a Sunday morning in 1856, Charles Spurgeon was preaching to thousands of people in his large London church. On that Sunday morning, pranksters yelled fire, which led to a stampede out of the church building, killing seven people and injuring 28 others. The man who would later become known as the Prince of Preachers was only 22 years old at the time. But from that fateful Sunday and lasting until his final days, Spurgeon's life would be marked by the dark clouds of despair. His wife, Susanna, wrote this about him during that particular time in his life. My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne. And we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. Spurgeon said this about that same time in his life. The very sight of a Bible makes me cry. The very sight of a Bible made the prince of preachers weep. Here are some other ways that he, he talked about his battle with despair and hopelessness throughout his life and ministry. He described his experience as a fight with a shapeless, undefinable, yet all beclouding hopelessness. He said that we can slip into the bottomless pits where our souls can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Nothing short of heaven can chase away the nightmare of the soul. He once wrote, I could say with Job, my soul chooses strangling rather than life. I could readily enough have laid violent hands upon myself to escape from my misery of spirit. I pity a dog. Who has to suffer what I have? 
Charles Spurgeon experienced the depths of hopelessness. And that's exactly what we see in our passage this morning. In Acts chapter 27, we see a group of men in an utterly hopeless situation on the verge of abandoning hope. But simultaneously, we see the source of our only true hope. So we'll be reading Acts 27 verses 13 through 26 as a reminder of where we're at in the book of Acts. Jesus has promised his church that they will go to the ends of the earth. And he's promised Paul specifically that he is going to testify about Jesus in Rome before Caesar. So Paul has been on trial multiple times. He is now on a voyage to Rome as a political prisoner on board a ship in the Mediterranean Sea when this happens. Hear now the words of Luke giving his eyewitness testimony under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, that is a, a sandbar, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempests lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. This is the word of the Lord. I think we can distill the thrust of this passage like this. Even when all hope seems lost, there is hope in the promises of God. Even when all hope seems lost, there is hope in the promises of God. 
And we'll see this truth played out in the two sections of our passage. That in verses 13 through 20, we'll see hope abandoned. And in verses 21 through 26, we'll see hope restored. But first we'll look at hope abandoned in verses 13 through 20. These verses, they describe a terrifying storm at sea. Luke describes it as a northeaster. That is, there's this strong northeasterly wind. Literally, he calls it a typhoon in verse 14. The ship was out of control, storm-tossed, in danger of running aground or capsizing on the reefs or sandbars. They were at the mercy of the wind. Or rather at the maker of the wind. As they were violently storm-tossed, the crew got the lifeboats ready. Never a good sign. And then they threw their cargo and their equipment, their tackle, overboard. An even worse sign. And remember from last week, we learned that this was probably a grain ship. And if grain got wet in the storm, it would expand become heavy and weigh down the boat. Sometimes it could even burst apart a boat from the inside out. This was a extremely dangerous situation. They didn't see sun or stars for many days, which was another huge problem. These were ancient mariners who relied on the stars for navigation. So they were hopelessly lost at sea. Luke sums up their collective groan in verse 20. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. The crew had put in an enormous effort to survive, but finally they abandoned all hope of rescue. Hopelessness. Hopelessness is an experience and a reality that we need to take seriously, that we don't need to neglect. Hopelessness can afflict any of us, Christian or non-Christian alike. Did you notice the word our in verse 20? It says all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This was both the pagan Roman sailors who didn't know God and Luke, Paul, and the Christians who did know God. They were all on the verge of abandoning hope. It can happen to any of us. Christians are not exempt. You might be in a season of hopelessness right now, this morning. And if so, I'm glad you're here. We're going to talk through this experience together. Maybe you're not currently experiencing a loss of hope. Maybe you're very hopeful. That's exciting. You should be thankful for that. You should celebrate that, of course. But I want you to be aware that sooner or later, you might find yourself slipping into that pit, the pit of despair. It might happen when the doctor gives you a diagnosis and it's serious. It's terminal. Or when you get the phone call that your spouse 
or your loved one or your friend has been in a car accident. And it's bad. It's real bad. Or when your children grow up and abandon the faith, they walk away from Jesus. Or when you feel the dark clouds of depression start to surround you again for seemingly no reason. Whatever the particulars might be, hopelessness can come when you least expect it. So what will you do? Will you be prepared? This is a new year. 2022 might be the absolute best year of your life. But it might be the worst year of your life. What will you do if that happens? Will you be prepared? (laughs) But hopelessness doesn't always come in a sudden moment of crisis. It can, but not always. Sometimes it appears little by little through the slow erosion of your hope. Maybe you've heard about the modern phenomenon of doom scrolling. Doom scrolling is when you spend an excessive amount of time on your phone, scrolling through bad news and continuing to scroll through bad news, even though you know it's nothing but bad news. It's nothing but negative and discouraging and disheartening. Your mindless scrolling on social media or your daily diet of cable news, it can be corrosive to the lived reality of your hope. I think that we so often turn to these media sources as a way to cope with despair, as a way to desensitize ourselves to the shadow of hopelessness that so saturates our culture. But these coping mechanisms will fail us every time because any attempt to cope with a fallen world apart from Jesus is doomed for failure. It's like a hamster running on his wheel. We'll expend a lot of energy and get absolutely nowhere. So what is our source of hope? Our true source of hope. Hope that won't disappoint us. Hope that won't fail us. Let's keep reading. Because in verses 21 through 26, we see hope restored. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. In the midst of this furious storm, God spoke. God spoke. Our God is the speaking God. The God who is there and is not silent 
And this God speaks into your deepest sorrows and into your most hopeless desperations. And this God speaks by making a promise. He promises that everyone on board will survive, even though the ship will be lost. And this is really a promise within a promise within a promise. Because this promise is linked back to Acts chapter 23, verse 11, where Jesus promised Paul that he will testify about him in Rome. But that is linked back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus promised to give the Holy Spirit to his disciples so they would bear witness about him to the ends of the earth. Our God is the promise-making God and he is the promise-keeping God. And he has given us his great and precious promises. Now this promise in in Acts 27 was specifically for those men on that particular ship, on that singular voyage. If you're ever out on the lake, on a boat, fishing, and a bad storm comes, you can't say, oh, well, I read Acts 27, right? We're promised we're going to lose the ship, but we're going to survive. We've got to run around on an island. No, no, no. This was a very specific promise. But God has filled his word with promise after promise after promise that all apply to all believers throughout all time. They apply to us. They apply to you. And these promises help our souls cling to hope even when all hope seems lost. Just as the men on this ship could cling to the promise that Paul's God, whom he worshiped, would ensure their survival. So God has given us promises that we can hope in as a light shining in the darkness. I love Hebrews chapter six. In that chapter, it describes God's promises as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. A sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. That is, God's promises can anchor us. Sure, steady, steadfast, even when the looming storm is dreadfully fearsome. And that anchoring power is based on the God who made the promises. As Hebrews 6 says, there are two realities about this God that makes his promises overwhelmingly trustworthy. He is the God who never lies, and he is the God who never changes. He will always tell the truth, and he will always stay the same. He will never deceive you, and he will never change his mind about you. So the promises that come from this God aren't a maybe or a probably. They're a definitely and absolutely. Did you see what Paul said in verse 25? So take heart men for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told exactly to the detail. God will keep his promises and all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ 
which is why they have the resilience to anchor your storm-battered soul. John Bunyan gives a beautiful picture of this in his classic allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress. There's a part in the story where Christian and his friend Hopeful, they are traveling on their pilgrimage to the celestial city. That is, they're living their Christian life on their way to heaven. And they get captured by a giant, a giant named Despair. And he locks them in the dungeon of his castle called Doubting Castle. And the first night that they're in this dungeon of the castle of doubt, that giant despair, he beats them mercilessly, physically, brutally, trying to break their spirits. But they persevere in hope. So the next night, he shows them all the bones of the Christian pilgrims who have gone before them, who have given up, who have abandoned hope to discourage them, to break their spirits. But again, the two pilgrims, they continue and hold fast to their hope. The third night, the giant of despair, he leaves a cup of poison in the dungeon with them, just coaxing them, tempting them to take their own lives in the night. But finally, when the Christian pilgrims, their spirits are about to break, they are on the verge of abandoning their hope. Christian says this, what a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, but I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And using the key, Christian and hopeful escaped. Dear believer, when you feel trapped in that stinking dungeon, remember that you have a key in your pocket. The key of God's promises. Don't forget about it. Don't neglect it. You have a way out. Now that's not an an easy, quick fix, an instant fix that'll take away all of our problems in one moment. But God's promises give us real hope that we can cling to. They give us a way of escape, a way forward. So what are some examples of the exceedingly precious soul anchoring dungeon unlocking promises of God? Let's look at three. Three promises that God speaks to you in his word. Isaiah 41, 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Just as the angel told Paul in our passage, he said, do not be afraid. So here God says, fear not. And we think, well, there better be a good reason, right? This world looks pretty fearful. There's a lot of reasons to be afraid. But God says, fear not. And then he says, I, I am with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you 
with my righteous right arm. That's a promise. Cling to it. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Did you notice in our passage that Paul tells the men on the ship twice, take heart, be encouraged, be of good cheer. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What a beautiful promise. In the passage, Paul promises them, or God promises through Paul, that they're going to lose the ship, but they're going to walk away with their lives. But not forever, right? Eventually they would die. Our bodies are going to wear out. No one makes it off this planet alive. Right? So Paul says here, even if our outer self is just wasting away, God promises to renew our inner self day by day as we compare these light momentary afflictions with the eternal weight of glory. So what is that eternal weight of glory? Let's look at this promise, this ultra promise, the mega promise. From the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. And Christian, I want you to close your eyes as I read this. And by faith, imagine what this will be like. Because in Christ, this is your inheritance. In Christ, this is yours. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Christian, you have a gloriously bright future. In Jesus, you have real, solid, lasting hope. But how can we make good on that hope? How can we utilize these promises? How can we lay hold on the hope-giving, life-giving power of these promises? How can we take the key out of our pocket and use it to unlock the dungeon? Well, Spurgeon 
can help us to see how this works. How did he hang on to hope even in the midst of a nightmare of the soul? How did he do it? Well, he wrote this. He said, in my time of trouble, and we know what that trouble was like. It was severe. In my time of trouble, I like to find a promise which exactly fits my need and put my finger on it and say, Lord, this is thy word. I beseech thee to prove that it is so by carrying it out in my case. I believe that this is your own writing. I pray thee, make it good to my faith. He says, take a promise in scripture and personalize it. Say, God, this is your word. You promise this to me. Make it true. Make it so. Keep your word to me. Fulfill your promises in my case. We often talk about the need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. And amen. But you also need to preach the promises to yourself. You need to talk to your own soul like the psalmist did in Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Search God's word for his promises and then take those promises and speak them to your own soul. Press them into your own heart until you have hope down in your bones. Commit some of the promises to memory so you can remind yourself of them while you're driving down the road or taking a shower or sitting at your cubicle or changing a diaper or when you're in the emergency room or at the graveside of a loved one or at your own deathbed. So, yes, I am telling you that you need to talk to yourself. You need to talk to yourself a lot. But this is what really leads to sanity and wholeness and hope. Another way to use the key of God's promises is to use them in community with other believers. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian wasn't alone in Doubting Castle. He had his friend Hopeful with him. And what a name. All right? If you had to just pick one word to describe me or, or just one word that would describe you, would it be Hopeful? Oh, uh, I hope it would be so. In Acts chapter 27, to the despairing sailors on that doomed ship, God sent Paul to speak words of hope to them. We need each other. Paul encouraged them. He said, take heart. He showed them God's promises. He pointed them to Jesus. Paul even rebuked and corrected them. Right In verse 21, he pretty much says, I told you so. But this rebuke was really a pleading. He's saying, you didn't listen to me the first time. I have your best interest in mind. I care about you. Please listen to me. And he said, you should have listened to me yet. 
And he gives them a promise. He gives them hope. Even his rebuke is filled with radiating hope. And Paul had apparently been praying for them. Did you notice the word granted in verse 24? The angel said to Paul, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Paul had been praying for them and his request had been granted. To live a life of Christian hope, you need God's promises and God's people. You need both. To live a life of Christian hope, you need God's promises and God's people. You might be called to walk through the shadowlands, but you're not called to walk there alone. You're not called to walk there alone. The Lord is with you and the Lord's people will be with you. And you need others in your life who will encourage you and build you up and point you to the promises and pray for you and even correct you when needed. And you need to be that kind of hopeful fellow pilgrim to others. This is why we emphasize growth groups so much. Our shared life in community with one another should remind us again and again of the promises as we walk, a lot, walk alongside one another. Even as we walk alongside one another through seasons of doubt and despair and unbelief, we can point one another to the promises. So we can use these keys of God's promise in our life in community, but also in our life as a part of God's mission in the world. Jesus has sent us into this hopeless world as his ambassadors to announce his good news of hope, his message of hope. Paul saw this hopeless situation on this ship as an opportunity, as a gospel opportunity, and he seized it for Christ's sake. May we do the same. In our age of melancholy, may we be heralds of good news, of great joy. May we be a people of hope in hopeless times. Now, I want to speak to those of you who might be skeptical when it comes to putting your hope in God. Maybe you're sitting on the fence about this whole Christianity thing. Maybe it's the painful reality of suffering that holds you back from putting your faith in Jesus. Well, the ship in Acts 27 was filled with pagan Roman sailors who they didn't know Jesus. And their worldview, it could offer an explanation for suffering, even for this horrible storm. <laughs> they had a pantheon of deities, so maybe it was Poseidon, the sea god, or Zeus, the storm god. And they're angry at them for some reason. Or maybe those gods are just in a fight with one another. And these sailors just unfortunately found their way into the middle of it. They had a way of understanding the storm. 
but it was extremely dissatisfying. And it was completely devoid of hope. But we have our own pantheon of modern secular deities. <laughs> when things seem hopeless, you might turn to the God of money or the God of sex or the God of food. You might run to the temples of power or pleasure or security. You might turn to your relationships or your career or your morality or your healthy living or your hobbies to find hope. You might turn to alcohol or to drugs or to pornography to numb the nagging sense of dread that seems to haunt you. But these are false gods. They're false hopes, idols that can't bear up under the weight of your unmet expectations. And our promise-making God is also an idol-smashing God who often sends severe mercies to help us abandon our sources of false hope and look to him alone as our only hope. So if you haven't put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you feel hopeless, the hard truth is this. You really are hopeless. It's not just a feeling. It's real because Jesus is your only hope. So to you, unbeliever, skeptic, maybe someone curious about Christianity, I want to give you three promises as well. Three promises coming directly from Jesus straight to you. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you need rest? Not just physical rest, but holistic rest. Body, soul, mind. Jesus will give it to you. Come to him. Is there a storm raging inside of you? Is there turmoil in your soul? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. John chapter six, verse 37. Jesus said, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you come to Jesus in faith, he will not reject you. He will not turn you away you will receive a warm welcome with him. Anyone who comes to him, he will in no way cast out. And John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. Now Jesus said this to the grieving sister of Lazarus, his dear friend, at the graveside where Jesus is weeping. So he says this with tears in his eyes. 
Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Death is your greatest enemy. That's where all hope is abandoned, right? The true pit of despair is the grave. And Jesus said, if you believe in him, even though you die, yet shall you live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Not really, not truly. Wow. If you have a problem with suffering, so does Jesus. He suffered and died to bring an end to suffering and death forever. He is the resurrection and the life. And that's really, really good news. You can come alive to the reality of hope, to the experience of hope today, right now. Put your hope in God and in his son, the savior of the world. Well, let's hear one last time from Mr. Spurgeon. He said this, and this is just wonderful. The promises of God are to the believer an inexhaustible mine of wealth. They are a hospital in which he will find all manner of restoratives and blessed elixirs. He shall find therein an ointment for every wound, a cordial for every faintness, a remedy for every disease. Blessed is he who is well skilled in heavenly pharmacy and knows how to lay hold onto the healing virtues of the promises of God. Oh, how unutterably rich are the promises of our faithful covenant keeping God. So for every one of us, for every one of you, I want you to leave here this morning filled with the eternal hope that is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to go out knowing that even when all hope seems lost, even when you're on the verge of abandoning all hope, there is hope to be found in the all precious, never failing, ever strengthening, life giving, despair destroying, hope enriching, soul anchoring promises of God. So take heart and have faith in God that it will be exactly as you have been told. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your exceedingly great and exquisitely precious promises. I pray that your spirit would use those promises to anchor our souls to Christ, our great Redeemer, even when the winds of hopelessness rage around us. May we be a people who hope against hope, knowing that you are the God who raises the dead. You have given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Now we ask you to comfort our hearts even now. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Amen. Well, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord 
lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.